Welcome to the Sidious Mac Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Chavez. The Sidious Mac Podcast is presented by Final Surge. No matter if you're an athlete or a coach, Final Surge helps plan and attain both short and long-term training success. Their free online training log is compatible with Garmin, Strava, Polar, Stride, Koros, and a slew of other apps and devices. If you're a coach, Final Surge makes planning and analyzing workouts simple and helps streamline communication with you and your athletes. Some of the top coaches in the world who have been guests on this podcast use it on a daily basis. If you're an athlete out there who's hammering miles and tempo runs solo with no guidance or direction, well, Final Surge is also here to offer up some world-class training programs. Get yourself a training plan for that spring 5K, that half marathon or full marathon that's on your calendar right now. They've got plans from Ben Rosario and NAZ Elite. Drew Hunter and Christine Thorne and the Tin Man Squad have their hammer and axe plans. You can always hit the classics with Greg McMillan or Boston Marathon champion Ambie Burfoot. And if you are a fan of the sport and are curious how the pros are training, Helen Taylor, Stephanie Bruce, and the rest of the NAZ Elite Squad share all of their training logs on Final Surge. Give it all a look at FinalSurge.com. Sidious Mag listeners can get 10% off their purchases by using code Sidious at checkout. So check it out today. Support for this episode also comes from listeners like you. Many thanks to everyone who has backed us on Patreon. A warm welcome to Becky Wexler and Lillian Guevara for signing up within the past week. Cheers to David Trump, who upped his monthly pledge from $5 a month to $10 a month. If you enjoy what we're doing across the Cities Mag Podcast Network, whether it's this show, Run Your Mouth, More Than Running, or if you just follow us on social media to keep up with the sport, support us over at patreon.com slash Mag. On Patreon, you can donate anything from a dollar a month, and we even have some people who donate a dollar a day, so that's about $31 a month, so we can cover hosting expenses, plan for on-location coverage, hit some content trips, website expenses, and much more, including hiring a podcast producer for some of our shows. We're going to be doing another episode of After the Final Lap later this month, so stay tuned for details on that very soon, but your support helps make things like that possible. And for those of you who are unable to commit to a monthly contribution, you can also make a one-time donation by sending any dollar amount over to Sidious Mag on Venmo. Feel free to include any message to let us know why. It can be because you enjoy these conversations. Maybe we're keeping you company on a run or a commute. Or if you just want to shout out a friend, teammate, coach, or family member who really loves the show, consider Venmo like a virtual tip jar. Those who chipped in this past week on Venmo include Michael Neeson, Ted Hill, Fuad Bate, Joshua Park, Eric Figoli, Andy Billadu, Matt Nestor, and Brent Stavali. Colin Hall wrote in saying, thanks for highlighting fellow Spartan Morgan Beetlescombe and for being my most consistent training partner this past fall, guiding me to a sub three and a BQ, hoping for a Sidious event in Boston during Marathon Weekend. Dude, I'm jealous. You've accomplished my running goals, so it sounds like I need you as a training partner. And yes, there will be Sidious Mag events in Boston next month, so stay tuned for information on that. Julie Zest said the show is constantly inspiring her to keep working towards that BQ. Get it, girl. Matthias Shelp said, y'all been entertaining me through hours of monotonous cross-training as I recover from injury. Love the show and wanted to give back. Last but not least, shout out to Evan Megalanes for running the Austin Half Marathon on February 20th. A congrats and I love you from Cecilia. That just warms my heart. And last but not least, before we get to the interview, I'm always grateful for the listeners who leave a little five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews and ratings help new people discover the show and let future sponsors know what you think. So thanks to those who also go ahead and share the episodes on their Instagram stories. My guest for today's episode is an absolute legend. I fought back tears during some parts of this interview because his storytelling is amazing. Please welcome Boston Marathon Race Director Dave McGilvery, and that's the title that he's best known by. In addition to that, he's also quite the philanthropist through his work organizing and managing events through DMCE Sports and now through the Dave McGilvery Finish Strong Foundation. Next month, he will be running his 50th Boston Marathon. Many people may have heard his story about how he runs the race at night after working all day, and he's the last finisher. We're going to go a little bit deeper into that and also touch on some of the plans that he has for this year's race. This time, he's going to try and make it special for the final mile by including VIPs, celebrities, friends, past Boston Marathon champions. It's going to be pretty awesome. I'll include the link in the show notes to his fundraising page because I'm sure you're going to walk away from this story pretty inspired. The crazy part is that Dave has run or organized more than a thousand mass participation events, so we haven't even scratched the surface on his stories and insights that he's had in life. So without further ado, here is Dave McGilvery. All right, we are here 
at the Running USA conference. Dave, I feel like one hour is definitely not going to be <laughs> enough time to go through just every one of your running achievements, but uh, welcome to the City of Smag podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and um, similarly, if I was interviewing you, <laughs> I think I think it would be the same. It would. We need the entire day, if not week. Yeah, so did you know that uh, your Wikipedia page, you've got the uh, athletic achievements section, and it's longer than 800 words. So that's initially why I went through it, and I looked at it, and I was like, yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to get through all of this. Yeah, I, I never counted <laughs> it, and someone else put it up there for me, so I haven't even really reviewed it. So I, sh I should probably read it and make sure it's all true. <laughs> so when we look at sort of where this whole journey began you've got a couple books out there i think children's books especially about how it all goes back to kind of being the last kid pick for 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 teams and so going into let's let's start with with running where does your sort of running journey begin because it's taken you everywhere around the globe yeah uh, but where does where, where's the starting point well growing up in boston uh it's a very sports frenzied uh, community with all the professional sports, the Red Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins, the Patriots, and the list goes on and on and on. And so as a young boy, I was exposed to that regularly. And so my whole dream goal in life was to become a professional athlete. And so I worked really, really hard at that. You know, was at, in the parks all the time, shooting hoop or playing tennis or you know, playing baseball or, you know, whatever it was with with all my friends. And then tryouts would come along for, you know, whatever. And I was typically the last one cut, you know, whenever I went out for a team. And, and when my friends picked sides, when we were just doing, you know, park league stuff, I was, I got Pete, I got Ralph, I got Fred, I got Tom, I got Sally, I got Jane. They even picked the girls over me at the time and so it was kind of a hard early beginning in terms of being an athlete mm -hmm. only because I've always felt there's three types of pain there's physical pain that you can work hard at and overcome there's mental pain similarly you can somehow figure it all out but then the most debilitating of all the pains is emotional pain mm -hmm. and I was going through an emotional time where I was learning about the concept of rejection, like no one wanted me. And my challenge was, I was vertically challenged. So being the shortest kid in, in you know, amongst everyone else, um, just, I was just picked out as, if you're short, you're not as good. Yeah. That, it wasn't necessarily true, but that's sort of what the mindset was. So... What did I do? I started running, you know, because no one can cut you from running, <laughs> right? Being an individual sport and, you know, I always ran to stay in shape for everything else. I didn't run to become a runner, but I just realized that the only way I was going to achieve becoming an athlete was to pick a sport like running. Yeah. And so... I just started setting personal goals. And one of the first ones was um, when I was 12 years old, I went out for a run around a pond near my house. It was six miles, and I ran six miles that morning. And then later on that night, I went back out and after cake and ice cream and <laughs> did it again. And, you know, it kind of coincidentally added up to 12 miles. So I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday. And then when I turned 13, I said, what did I do when I turned... 12, I ran, so I ran 13 and 14, 14, 15 and 15. When do you regret starting that tradition? <laughs> uh, well, you know, when I was young and, you know, <laughs> spry, it wasn't that difficult. But then as I got older and older, it became exponentially more <laughs> difficult because it was getting longer. And, you know, um, you know, the age thing started s setting in. So right now, instead of <laughs> looking forward to my birthday every year, I'm almost regretting it, not because I'm getting older. It's just like, that's a long way to, I'm 67 <laughs> now. So I've been doing this for 55 or so years. Um, but, but that's what I love. I love the fact that, 
you know, it's a connection with the past in terms mm-hmm. of still being able to challenge myself in my own way. Yeah. And it's just a very personal thing. It isn't I'm competing against anyone else. It's just myself. So I started just getting really into the whole challenge yourself running thing. Yeah. And then it just took off from there. So obviously when you're in high school, college, it's it's easy to be part of a team and be able to go out and compete at meets. You know, from, from those early on chapters, what were some of the big challenges that you kind of set for yourself? Was it just to win, to, to run as, as fast as you could? Well, I never was what I would consider like an All-American. Right, right, right. You know, I wasn't setting records at all. But I was, I was probably bottom of first tier, top of second tier. So I was competitive. Um, you know, I was running around... 10 minutes for the two mile and mm-hmm. I was running like 4.35 for the mile. Nice. So, it, but I wasn't, it, I was winning some races, but it wasn't like I'm going to the States and mm-hmm. become the best runner in the state. So, so that, that wasn't it for me. What was, what did it for me is setting these very personal goals, mm-hmm. you know, of running my age and my birthday. And then when I turned 17, that's when I sort of jumped into my first Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. And I had heard about the race, obviously, and listened to it on the radio. And in 1970, Ron Hill won, set a course record in the rain. And I just remember that day so vividly. And I thought, someday I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. And I told my dad I was going to do that. And then in 72, I was a senior in high school, and I just had the notion I'm just I'm going to do it today. <laughs> so I called up my grandfather who was a supporter of my athleticism and he lived near the course. And I said, "Grandpa, I'm going to go run running that race in Boston." He said, "Oh, oh they call that the Boston Marathon." I said, "Oh, well, that's a good name for it." <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to go run it. And um so he said, "Well, I'll meet you at Coolidge Corner." And I said, "Great. Where's that?" <laughs> he said, "24 miles." I said, okay, Grant, I'll see you at 24. My brother drove me out to the start. I grabbed an old cross-country bib number and put it on. It was a number of some guy in California who was running in the race. Uh, his name was Gus Wagenhofer. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And I'm, I'm running the course. Everyone's, go, Gus, go, Gus. And I said, oh, my God, I'm wearing the number of someone else's in the race. I'm, I was doing everything I shouldn't be doing as a 17-year-old. I wasn't officially registered, nothing. I didn't train, so I finally got to the around 20 in the hills in Newton. Mm-hmm. Boom, down I go. <laughs> I got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. Oh, man. And I called my parents up. I said, come pick me up. They said, where are you? I said, I'm in the Newton Wellesley Hospital. What are you doing there? Never mind, just come pick me up. <laughs> they came pick me up, drove me home. I called my grandfather, no answer. I called him again, no answer. Nine o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, Grandpa, where have you been? Dave, where have you been? The old man, Kelly, goes by. The street sweepers go by. No, Dave. I said, yeah, yeah, I quit. He <laughs> said, you what? I said, I failed. He said, nah, you didn't fail. I said, I didn't. What I do? He said, you learned. I said, great. What I learned? He said, you learned that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You had no business being in that race, and you know it said, you're right. He says, I'll cut another deal with you. I said, what? He said, now you train really hard for next year's race, and I'll be here waiting for you. Fine. Two months later, my grandfather died. Mm. So I was like, all right, I got to do this in honor and memory of him teaching me that lesson about earning the right to do these things. I trained, 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 and I was doing 120, 130 miles a week as an 18-year-old, officially registered for the race. And finally, the day before the race comes, and I got sick. My oh, parents no. said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. And they said, no, you're too sick. And I said, well, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me before? They said, yeah, what's that? I said, a chance. Because isn't that all we ever want in life is a chance to do mm-hmm. these things? So they said, okay. So they drove me to the start, dropped me off. I take off. I get to five. There's nothing in the tank. I was so sick. I said, you know, they were right. I shouldn't be doing this. I kept going. I kept going. And finally got to the halfway point. And there's my parents on the side of the road. And there's my mother. And what's she doing? She's crying. 
Why? Because I guess that's what mothers do. <laughs> they cry because they're going through so much pain worrying about you. And I just realized the position I put, th put them in, right? And then there's my dad taking pictures, you know, of, of my mother <laughs> crying, you know. So I just kept going and got to the point where I dropped out the year before and doing the survivor shuffle over the hills. And then at 21 and a half, boom, down I go again. Oh, man. So what's going through my head now with my head in my hands is like, I want to be an athlete. And I'm the last pick. I'm the last one cut. I drop out of my first Boston. I drop out of my second Boston. Like, maybe this wasn't meant to be. And then what I call a defining moment happened in my life. And I looked around. I said, this place looks a little familiar, but I, I don't know that I've ever been here before in Boston. But, yeah, I have once. And that was for the burial of my grandfather and he's buried right here in the evergreen cemetery and i look behind me and there's his tombstone i went son of a gun <laughs> he said he'd be here and maybe he wasn't there physically but he was there spiritually mm -hmm. and i picked myself up and i kept going and i finished in four and a half hours my very first marathon and i said to myself on that day in 1973 that i was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life and honor a tribute of the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right to do these things mm -hmm. and haven't missed a year since. Now we're coming up on 50. Is that every race, the race has changed and evolved just sort of in terms of like the race experience, you know, that the participants have every sort of year. So how does sort of, and you, you know, play a big role in that as the, the director, how do you sort of try and remember that first one to, you know, and, and it's, it's Boston, it's been going on for over 120 years where it's like the tradition is such a big part of what makes it special how do you sort of try and keep it as alive as possible that a tradition it, it it feels like not too much changes in boston every every sort of year no it it really doesn't um i mean that's both the beauty of it but also the challenge of it you know i direct a lot of other races and i can let my creative juices run wild mm -hmm. and do relay teams and do all kinds of different things that you would never do in Boston, right? But, but that's okay too, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I ran Boston for 15 years in a row and then got off the job to help manage it. And, you know, I was faced with a really difficult decision. Do I run in it, continue, fulfill my commitment to myself and my grandfather? Or do I help run it, direct it? And it was really hard to make that decision, but I said, how can I pass up the opportunity as an event producer to be involved in the most prestigious marathon in the world? I'll figure it out. So I took the job mm -hmm. and, you know, helped start the race and all that and got to the finish line and I'm high-fiving all the runners and I'm like, boy, something's missing, obviously. And I just, you know, was full of self-pity. And I said, I can't believe I didn't run. And then I decided, no, I got I to gotta fix this. And I tapped a police officer on the shoulder and I said, will you do me a favor? He said, what? And I said, will you drive me back to the start? He said, why? Did you forget something? I said, yeah, I forgot to run. <laughs> so he drove me back to the start, 8 o'clock at night. And I ran the whole thing, finished it around 11. At night, dead last. Thus started, started another mm -hmm. Boston tradition yeah. that I would direct it during the day and generally when the race was over and the majority of it was I'd go back out and bring up the rear and so effectively you could say I've been the last finisher of the marathon for the last 34 years so we're coming up on 35 at night 50 overall for me and when I think back to that first year I dropped out and then the second year that I actually finished, obviously then I was never thinking that someday, you know, I'll be running my 50th. I mm -hmm. mean, th those things don't necessarily register in your mind. Um, but it just, you know, it just creeps up on you. And here we are. And, you know, it's certainly one of the, it will be one of the most pr proudest moments because of how it actually started not mm -hmm. that I'm doing my 50th but I'm doing my 50th when there was a moment when I never even thought I'd do my first yeah 
do you think about that first moment like when you pass it on the course all the time and what goes through your head i stop for a, a, a moment of reflection and i look i could i know where the tombstone is and i just say a few words to my grandfather um and said you made this possible yeah and and carry on you know and it's funny because you know every year is different in terms of how you physically feel mm -hmm. feel and and sometimes you know in races especially marathons you wonder boy i don't have it today am i going to even finish <laughs> but i know that every time that i get to that spot that's the point of no return i'm finishing mm -hmm. not that i don't have that in back of my mind all along the whole way but when i get there i said if i can finish the year that i was going to drop i can finish you know so it's almost like the evergreen cemetery almost is my unofficial finish line yeah and the and that's at the 22 mile mark so i got four miles to go and i almost look at the four miles as like more of a victory lap yeah, yeah. you know just kind of finishing it up so for to give context to people because you said not every year you know depending on the day it it feels like you know i'm going to be able to do this one in four hours or three and a half hours or however long it takes because of just the logistics of your job on that day i had a conversation with ted metellus yesterday where he said oh yeah last year was his first time you know directing the new york city marathon and he looked at the end of the day and his watch said that he had walked 24.9 miles on that day and that's just you know getting to the start line you know doing some interviews for, for TV you know meeting with cops and you know just all the logistical parts that come to directing some of the biggest marathons in the world so for you how does that day start from you know the morning what time do you wake up how much sleep did you even have the night before to then eventually it's your turn to you know get to Hopkinton and, and toe the line yeah, I mean, my priority always has been and continues to be the race. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've been hired to help manage it. There's 30,000 people depending on, you know, us delivering a good product. And so I have to focus on that, you know. So, you know, so, um, you know, it's one of those things where um, even though I'm focused on the race, in the back of my head, I know I'm going to have to do this too. So there's a degree of anxiety, <laughs> you know, the day before and the morning of and throughout the entire day. There's always that looming thought that my day doesn't end when the last, when the last runner in the race finishes, right? So um, I get up early, you know, probably three, and then I'm out at the start around... 4.30-ish, mm -hmm. and on my feet. And, you know, since my mind is just really focused on the race and what I need to be doing, I'm not paying any attention to me. So I'm not eating right. <laughs> I'm not obviously resting at all. I'm on my feet. And go through all the starts, and then I typically get on a lead motorcycle, motor scooter. And so I'm on that for two hours leading the race then I get off the bike and then I'm walking the entire finish area checking in with all the team captains going to the medical tent you know just surveying everything observing everything critiquing everything so all that's going on and then as we get to mid-afternoon and the things on automatic pilot then I have to s switch hats and say okay I, I think I can check out and move on to the next stage of today. Yeah. Then I go back to the hotel. I change, try to eat something, drink something. Then I get driven back out to the start and off I go. And you know, the run at night is sort of the calm after the storm. Mm -hmm. I usually have anywhere between three and 10 people running with me, depending on who asks and who wants to. And um, you know, I have a state police escort the whole way, not because I asked them to escort me, only because I work with them all year on the race and they want to do this. They mm -hmm. want to make sure I'm safe out there too, which is really special to have that. Um, 
but it's getting hard. <laughs> it's hard. You know, when I started it in my 30s, you're in your 30s, right? You're invincible. You can almost do anything. And now it's just, you know, I've got 150, 160,000 miles on these legs. I've run 164 marathons. I've run, you know, all the, all the stuff, right? And not that I'm injured or, or hurt, but it's just, you know, you slow down, yeah. right? And so the human body can only take so much, you know, punishment through in one day. So, you know, I'm getting to the top of that, that, you know, lip where, you know, I don't want to go over the edge. <laughs> so my goal is to run, run it at night this year in April, and then to try to figure out a way where I can still be involved in the race directing, but mm -hmm. run it during the day. And then, then I'd be able to critique it as a runner yeah, yeah. and mid-pack versus out front with the leaders on a scooter. But I'm, I'm, I'm effectively doing the exact same thing, yeah. just a little bit further back. But that's valuable, too, if not more valuable. Yeah. And, you know, then I can finish and then, you know, do what I do at the finish anyways. So we'll see how it goes. How are you planning on making this one in particular special? I got sort of the, the news release that, that you kind of put out, and there's VIPs jumping in at some point or something like that. What's the thought process here? Well, um, I've been very lucky and um, you know, it's just blessed that I've got a lot of good friends in the business, mm -hmm. you know, runners, average runners or I icons, yeah. you know, and, you know, a lot of times I'm coming down the finish line and I look and there's Meb, you know, or Dina or Joni or this one or that one. And so there's been a lot of them over the years. Right. So I just wrote to all of them. And said, you know, this one's special. So um, if you'd like to join me for the last mile or be there at the finish, you know, it would mean the world, right? They all write back, you know. I mean, the ones that are going to be here in Boston yeah. are going to either run the last mile or be there at the finish. So there's, there's going to be a, a scene, <laughs> you know, with, you know, maybe 10 former winners of the Boston Marathon, you know, kind of being being part of this would be pretty special but I don't look on, look at them as former winners of the Boston Marathon as much as I look at them as just personal friends yeah you know because they are you know we do a lot of I direct Joni's race Billy and I have been friends for 42 years right um, the list goes on and on and on so um, so it's spe special and then a lot I'm gonna have the biggest group running with me ever probably 25 uh, friends who have at one point over the last 30 some odd years have run with me. So I invited them all back and say, hey, you know, this could be the last time I do it at night if, if I, I'm able to do it during the day. So, um, you know, if you want to join me, you're welcome. And they're all like, <laughs> so they're flying in from all over. You know, Seattle and Idaho and everywhere. Yeah. So the people might be wondering, you did, you know, spit out some of the numbers, number of marathons that you've done. And so to be able to do this, you know, be able to consistently, even just people thinking like 50 marathons in general is bananas to some people, where how do you sort of stay? Are you just in year long shape to be able to peak and like look forward to the Boston Marathon being like your your A goal for the year? Or do you have like, you know, other? are you actively having to, to actually still train for this, you know, the 26.2, or is it, uh, you know, you look like you're in the 20, in your 20s, but is it old man strength just coming to play here too? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I, again, I'll never forget what my grandfather taught me about earning the right. So I can't just, well, I can, I guess, wake up and go run a marathon yeah. tomorrow, but I, I, I want it to be respectable, right? I don't want to run, walk a marathon. I mm -hmm. want to, I'm a runner. I'm not a walker. And so, you know, you want to do it within a respectable amount of time. And in order to do that, you've got to do what marathoners do, yeah, you know, yeah. and train and peak and that kind of thing. So, so no, I focus on April and, and do the work that everyone else does, you yeah, know, in yeah. terms of getting ready for that particular day or any other marathon during the year that I'm, you know, want to give, give it a shot.
So for this year's 50th, there's the even more special component to it too, is the foundation that you're that you you oversee and and are, are part of. So I guess for the listeners, can you share I guess a little bit about you know the how it got, all got started, what it accomplishes, and and how you really want this this 50th Boston to to highlight it. Yeah. Um, so my whole life, I have combined philanthropy with with everything I've ever done in, in terms of athletic achievements. Um, you know, in 1978, I ran across the United States from Medford, Oregon to Medford, Mass, and I did it for to raise money for the Jimmy Fund, which is the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And it was interesting, Runner's World, only a few years ago, said that that was the first time somebody had combined running with raising money for cancer research. Mm. And it probably was, right? And then the advent of Live Strong and team and training and just everything came along. Not necessarily because of that run, but it did come along after yeah. that run. So just the whole concept of combining giving back with a personal goal of some athletic achievement is pretty powerful. You know, they work hand in hand. And um, I just knew that if I was going to run 45, 50 miles every single day, without a day off across this continent, A, it should benefit someone more than me. There needs to be a greater purpose. And I need to have a stronger reason for doing it when the tough gets going. Mm -hmm. You know, that I can't just, oh, it's a personal thing and I don't have to do it and I'm not committed to anyone except me. No, I committed to something much greater than me. And... So I've done that my whole, my whole life with all these races and running up the East Coast and doing 24-hour runs, 24-hour swims, 24-hour bike rides. So I've raised, I helped raise, you know, lots of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars through all the events and, and whatnot that I've directed and personally done. But then I thought, well, what am I leaving behind for my, my own family, my kids? What's my legacy? And even though we've raised some money for these different charities and I know that they appreciate it, maybe I should, you know, stop my own. Yeah. So I just started a, a, a foundation called the DMSE Foundation, Dave McGilvey Sports Enterprises. That's my business. So we just started dabbling in it a little bit, but I didn't really focus on it a lot because I was focused on the mothership, my my for-profit business yeah yeah and if you want your nonprofit to be successful you have to invest the time into it but I was putting most of my time into my own business well now as I get older and start backing off a little bit I'm refocusing on the concept of the foundation so we just renamed it mm -hmm. the Dave McGilvey Finish Strong Foundation and effectively this 50th Boston Marathon is sort of a a launch of the foundation and I wanted to raise 50,000 for the 50th and totally we're already over that you know so I I'm very grateful to have a lot of people who support me and are, are, are generous to donate to the foundation as far as the foundation is concerned um, basically the mission of the foundation is to 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 inspire children to set goals, not limits, and to help build self-confidence and self-esteem, mainly in children, mm -hmm. because that's what I needed when I was a child, and that's what gave me the strength and the path to be able to accomplish what I have. And I know that you know a lot of people say to me, what the, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? The toughest part is signing the application, right? Yeah. It's having the courage and the guts to make the commitment, and then you have to earn the right, and then you toe the line, you run the course, you cross the finish line, you get a medal, and magic happens. <laughs> you know, you go home feeling good about yourself, and that's the very foundation by which we accomplish everything in our lives, and that's what I want to give to kids, and that's why I wrote my children's, three children's books, Dream Big, Running Across America, and Finish Strong, and in the back of the books, I it is a call to action because I don't want the kids just to read the book put it down and go out 
play horseshoes or something, right? I want them to do something about it. So there's the Dream Big Marathon Challenge, which is challenging the kids to read 26 books. So that's education and literacy to run 26 miles over 26 days or whatever. So that's health and fitness. Mm -hmm. And then do 26 acts of kindness. And that's giving back and filling up the pee. And I think those are the three pillars of my life. And I'm trying to instill that in kids. And once they do it, then they send me their form showing me that they did it. And I mail them a Dream Big Marathon medal. And um, I have thousands of kids around the country right now doing that very challenge. So that's sort of what the mission of the foundation is, is just to give kids an opportunity and a chance to set their own goals and accomplish them. Yeah, I'm looking at the the release that, that you sent over and like, you know, another part of it too is like a major portion of the young children with prosthetics is that to purchase running blades for them, uh, also used for athletic scholarships so older kids can attend college and pursue their athletic running career. So why did you kind of like add on those sort of also? Because I, cause it's just hard to just... You just, yeah. <laughs> just do one segment. <laughs> you know, I want to help everyone on the planet, right? But the whole piece of the, um, there's a, an organization out there ca- called Running as a Right, Me- meaning, and they're the ones who support kids with prosthetics, but giving them blades. Mm-hmm. So not only can they walk with their prostheses, but they can run now with the blade. And when, when I just look at that vision, right, first of all, the, the young kid had to go through some trauma, yeah. some tragedy, whatever, and he has a prosthetic. But he wants to play sports, and he, he needs something else in order to accomplish that. So if we give them the blade, now they'll be able to run, and run is going to give them self-confidence. It's all a cycle, right? And it works together. So to give the blade is a, is a, the optics of that. You can see it. You can see it in their face. Yeah. They're able to... Now run versus walk and accomplish something and feel good about themselves and carry on. So that's why, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And as far as um, athletic scholarships, um, I just, for me, um, I just want to continue to promote the sport and the industry that gave me a chance. Yeah. Running. So that's why I want to get back to my high school and my college um, and develop you know, athletic scholarships for mainly for um, their running programs. So you've already touched on a couple times shouting out the fact you've run across the country. And then in addition to that, I think the story that I enjoyed hearing when we first got to meet down in Florida a couple months ago was seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. So for our listeners, I guess, can you you know, share a little bit about those two particular experiences because, you know, on paper, anyone sees that, they're just like, wow. And I, it's buried within your athletic achievements section on your, on your Wikipedia page because it's still so vast. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the run across the country. Um, that was one of the first big ones for you. Yeah, that was really the first big one. Um, talk about starting <laughs> off with the biggest <laughs> one, right? And everything after that is like ho-hum. Um, well, not really, but in comparison. But, um, you know, again, I had this whole mentality of challenging m- myself, especially after being, you know, cut and last pick. And, and I wasn't ever trying to prove someone wrong. I was just trying to prove me right. Yeah. Like, I was just doing it for my own self-esteem. So I had heard about a friend who biked across the country from Medford, Mass to Medford, Oregon. And I thought, you know, if he can bike across, I'm a runner. I can run across. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a silly comparison. They're very different, right? But I still felt like I can do this. So I, I just set the goal, and I didn't tell anyone. And I started planning and started training and... And that's why I was working at a, as a benefit consultant in the Hancock Tower in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I looked out the window one day and I saw Fenway Park and I saw a sign out in right field that said, help make a dream come true, support the Jimmy Fund. So I thought, mm, maybe I'll combine my run 
with the Jimmy Fund because they're the official charity of the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to play for the Red Sox, second <laughs> base. So I went ahead and just made the commitment to do it. And, you know, I had to earn the right. You know, I would do things like one week I drove my car from my hometown to Rochester, New York. It was about 400 and something miles, charted out, uh, you know, each day and drove home. And then next week went out and ran it with a backpack. So I ran like 400 miles in 10 days. And I just proved to myself that um, I can do this. You know, I, I think I can do this. And flew out to Method Oregon and ran across the country and finished in Fenway Park in front of 32,000 people. And I mean, that's the day I honestly felt I became the athlete I always wanted to be. And if I can't play second base at Fenway, then I'm going to run mm-hmm. at Fenway. And I got like a 10-minute standing ovation, probably longer standing ovation than any ball players ever got, right? So it, it was just, um, it's just, I took a different path. Yeah. Right? So with the World Marathon Challenge, um, I got a call from a friend who was actually the president of the um, Miami Marlins, Florida Marlins. And he was a triathlete, and, a, and a, he used to run Boston himself. And he says, hey, h- have you ever heard of the World Marathon Challenge? I said, yeah. He said, you want to do it? I said, the entry fee is like $47,000. I'm not going to do that. So he says, no, 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 I'm getting a group of people together. We're going to get it all covered. Sign me up. <laughs> I said, it's right up my alley, definitely. And that's after I had been diagnosed with severe coronary artery disease a year before. But I said, I want to do this. So I trained for that. And we ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't like, the hardest thing I've ever done yeah. with some of these other things. Um, the running part was sort of almost the easy part, relatively speaking, um, because that's what I do, right? <laughs> but it was the rat race in between. Yeah. You know, it's packing and unpacking and, you know, on the plane and trying to recover at 35,000 feet and sleep deprivation and all those things that you can't train for. You just mm-hmm. you have to be in the moment and deal with it as it comes along. Um, so I was able able to get that done and then once I got that done then you know my coronary artery disease started really kicking in and then I had to have open heart surgery so oof that's the other thing too that I think like a lot of people probably wondering is like how have you managed to keep your body uh, you know as healthy as possible to maintain all of this but it hasn't come without bumps along the way no I think um you know I've been very lucky I I think the guys I used to run competitively with in the 70s and 80s, you know, they were maybe they're 218, 220 marathoners, and I was 230, 229. But a lot of them now, artificial hips, artificial knees, you know, the whole bit. Mm-hmm. I always wondered back then, you know, when Billy started really putting a hammer down and running mega, mega miles when no one else before that era was doing that, um, I always wondered long term what is this going to mean because there was no historical data about people running 130 miles a week yeah. you know the, the 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 earlier generation the johnny kelly's clarence demas of the world they weren't doing that um so now we're finding out <laughs> because all those guys that were in their 20s then are now in their 70s or 80s and you know they're not running yeah and i thought man if this is going to happen to anyone it's going to happen to me but knock on wood yeah everything is intact (laughs) um it has a lot to do with genetics has to do with biomechanics has to do with just recovery just paying paying attention to your body yeah has there been any conversation with a doctor that has like gotten you nervous about like oh man i'm gonna have to stop no no i mean the only thing that stopped me for a little bit was the fact that um I went out running someday, and this has nothing to do with my running. It's my genetics, and I could feel some difficulty breathing. Yeah. And then it, w- it just persisted. And, you know, like any runner, it's like, I can get through this, you know, and it'll go away. And it didn't go away. <laughs> so then I said, I better do something about this. And went into Mass General Hospital and had all these tests done, echocardiogram, stress tests, EKGs, everything. And 
All the doctors said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. I said, yes, there is. I can't breathe when I'm running. So I said, you got to give me the big boy tests, you know. You got to look under the hood. <laughs> so they gave me CAT scan angiograms. And then the doctors come in and says, there, 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 and there. And I said, there what? And they said, you have severe coronary artery disease. I said, no, I don't. Like, really, what's going on? No, you do. <laughs> I'm like, so the first thing I said to him was, well, zip it up. And he said, what? I said, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Why? Because it's a ding in my armor. Like, I don't want anyone to know this guy who done all this running is now sick. And because the naysayers are just going to blame my running on it. You know how, how that goes. I said, I don't want anyone to know about it. So then, of course, people eventually found out about it. And then I st started getting emails from runners around the country saying, I heard about your coronary artery disease. And, you know, when I heard about it, I thought, well, I have the same symptoms. And I went and got checked. I otherwise wouldn't have if I didn't hear about you. And I walked out of the hospital with three stents. And you saved my life. I'm like, how did wow. I save your life? Right? And then I realized... You know, I gotta. I can't be so selfish to keep this in. Like, I gotta let other people know that the lesson I learned was that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. And I always thought it did, right? And so, I remember turning to the doctor when I was on the operating table, and I said, "One question to ask you." And he said, "What?" I said, "Is this reversible?" And he said, "Well, it depends." I said, "Depends on what?" He said, "Depends on the person." I said, well, you're looking at him. <laughs> he says, you, with your discipline, I think you can have an imp impact on your own illness. I said, well, sign me up. And I went on a tear. I mean, I changed everything. My nutrition, diet, my sleep habits. I thought sleep was, always thought sleep was overrated. You know, stress. And I lost 27 pounds. I lowered my cholesterol level by over 100 points. And I said, I, I need a magnet, I need a target to really work hard at, and I decided to go back to Hawaii to do the Ironman again mm -hmm. for the ninth time. So I went to Hawaii, did the Ironman, and then I thought I beat it. And then um, I went and did the World Marathon Challenge, and then when I got back, I could feel difficulty again. I'm like, what the heck, I thought I beat this. Went back into the hospital, had another angiogram, and he said, you got 98% blockage in your main artery. Oh. I'm like, how'd this happen? So I said, well, what are my options? He says, well, you can do nothing and live a sedentary life. Cross that <laughs> off. We can stent it, but it's kind of risky because it's near, near your heart. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to risk. You're not going to mess with the heart. Or we can have open heart bypass surgery. No, nah, I don't want that either. He said, well, you've run out of options. <laughs> good point and I said well there's this in six months there's this little jogathon <laughs> in April in Boston doc I, I've shuffled through it a couple of times <laughs> what do you think and he, he gave me the best possible answer he didn't say no you can't or yes you can he said I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it and that just gave me that four letter word hope and I said well, maybe I can and of course my health is more important than a road race but the road race is important too maybe I can pluck both of these out I said okay let's go and I had open heart triple bypass surgery and then I had to go through the delicate balance of recovery and training recovery and training and not training so much that I'm impacting recovery and not recovering so much that I can't get the training in <laughs> You know, and there's not a lot of books out there on how to do this because not many people have done it. But I was able to, you know, sensitively and, um, you know, able to get through it. And I went back out in 2019 and ran my 48th Boston Marathon. Wow. So the fact that eventually, you know, word got out about this like, and you started getting these messages, I feel like it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that you probably have like 
or people consider you to be like their friend just because it's a friendly face that they see at the start or finish of the Boston Marathon and because it's 30,000 plus people who do this every single year you've got hundreds of thousands of friends that you probably don't even know but sometimes you do get these notes and these emails how special is that to kind of experience and like sometimes you just don't know the impact you have yeah it's humbling for sure um you know i I live in my own little cocoon you know and do my own thing and you never know what the extent of that might be you know who you are in fact impacting and you know i i'm no superstar you know lebron james tom brady but there are occasions when people come up to me and say certain things and um you know they're flattering and and you know i i walk away just saying you know you you have a mission you know you were put on this earth and you you do have an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives and and i know that and that's why i do motivational speaking and that's why i try to be available to anyone and everyone i return every single email i return every single phone call my attitude is i'm no better than anyone else we're all in this thing together and if they're reaching out to me for something then i'm getting back to them you know because it must be meaningful to them yeah to want to hear something and so um you know it it, it it's like i said it's humbling and flattering but it's motivational for me too yeah so the has there been moments especially with the boston marathon that have like moved you to tears i I feel like obviously you know the first couple you pass by you know the the cemetery and it it, it hits you this time around like how what are some of these moments in, in the past 50 years that have, that have impacted you? And at the same time, are, are you sort of already visualizing just like, you know, the amount of emotion that might hit you this time around? Yeah. Um, I'm a quiet, emotional guy. Like, I'm not an, I don't show my yeah, emotions. Yeah. Um, so I may be really fired up to get this thing done and, and then get it done but you're not going to see me jumping up and down and screaming and yelling and celebrating. It's not what I do, but I'm, I'm, I'm really celebrating quietly in my own head, you know, almost like I just make, make a gesture like, yeah, got it. You know, and that, that's all I need. Right. But there are moments, um, you know, when (laughs) like a couple of times when I was running at night, you know, when I first started running at night, I used to be, you know, yelled at and screamed at, hey, you slug, why don't you train next year? Because they think I'm last. <laughs> you know, I am last, but they think I started with everyone else. And I'm like, they just don't know. And it it can be hurtful, like like if you only knew, but I don't have time to stop to tell yeah, them the yeah. story, you know, and I keep going. <laughs> so only recently, you know, after like 40 years of doing this, I'm running through Ashland and there's two guys on their front lawn having a few pops and one guy's yelling and screaming at me. The other guy gives him the big elbow and says, hey, leave him alone. That's the race director. <laughs> you know, I'm like, finally someone realizes this, you know, kind of a thing. So those little snippets, you know, um, mean a lot. Um, so, and, and just, you know, other things that I'm able to, to help make happen. Like I got a call once from this young girl named Katie. And she says, hi, my name's Katie. Can I, can I come and see you in, in the marathon office? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, of course. So she shows up and she's in a wheelchair and she goes into the conference room and I'm like, I'm, I, don't, I have no idea who this person is. And I look across the table and my jaw dropped and Katie was 36 inches tall. She says, I have a question to ask you. And I said, what's that? She says, can I run the Boston Marathon? You want to run the Boston Marathon? Yeah, I want to run the Boston Marathon. And I just paused. I said, ask me a difficult question. <laughs> she said, I can? I said, yeah. She says, I can run the Boston Marathon. I said, yeah. She says, well, I have a caveat. I said, what's that? 
my marathon's 26.2 feet. I said, okay. That, that works. She trained like the Dickens. And I set it all up, 26.2 feet from the starting line, down the course, barricaded. She shows up at the start. She's in a wheelchair. She gets out of her wheelchair into her walker. And I yell, go. And she goes. And took her like seven, eight minutes to do 26.2 feet. And I put a laurel wreath on her head and a medal around her neck. There's 25,000 people there, media from all over the world. She had gone through 35 operations at Children's Hospital. Wow. But her dream was to run the Boston Marathon. You know, and I have a motto in my life, and the, my motto's, it's my game, so it's my rules. Her game, her rules. So I gave her a hug, and then like nine hours later, I'm running my marathon, and I'm running down the finish line, and I look up, and there's one person there waiting for me, and it's little Katie. Oh, amazing. She puts a laurel wreath on my head that she made for me and a medal around my neck that she made for me. And uh, she looks up and goes, ha, I beat you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she died like maybe six months later. Um, but she was able to fulfill her dream of running the Boston Marathon yeah. her way. You know, and I feel fortunate that I was in a position to help make that happen, you know? And I know there's all these rules and policies and all these events that we all do, Yeah. but I guess if, if I have a flaw, um, I, I'm overly compassionate. And I say in my head, yeah, we have rules and policies, but it's only a road race, right? And this means the world to some people. So I tweak it here and tweak it there and just give them their, give them their mo moment. Yeah. I try to do that. I mean, I don't break all the rules, but <laughs> I try to do that as many times as I can, when I can, and as long as it's not hurting anyone else or inconveniencing anyone else, I'll try to make it happen for people. Yeah. You probably opened the floodgates to more emails coming your way with people uh, <laughs> shooting their <laughs> shot right. to make it happen. And I'm, I'm also guessing a large portion of that is people asking you, hey, Dave, get me a bib to the Boston Marathon. <laughs> well, of course, uh, anyone associated with the race gets hit up. And, you know, it, you can only do so much, too. At some point in time, you have to say, I'd love to be able to help you. But uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not able to. But, um, but yeah, you, 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 you do the best you can with what you got. Yeah. The other component to your past, I guess, like within the past two years, right, was uh, then you got tasked with the interesting job of vaccine distribution uh, in Boston. How did that sort of like come across your plate? And then when you look at it based off of, you know, how you conduct road races, like how did you use that skill set to, to make that happen? Well, like some things just being said at this conference, you know, the whole over use word now pivot but you know you you get into these i wouldn't call it a rut but these routines mm -hmm. of just doing what you do because you might do it well and so you just keep doing it and you never really pause or stop it's just it keeps going and going and going so you're not looking outside of that lane and all of a sudden you know the pandemic just stopped us in our tracks and you know, it was one of those things where I always felt that, you know, this industry is bulletproof. And then I was proven wrong with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But then we're faced with the reality. And it's almost like going through the five stages of death and dying. You know, the first is denial. And then it's anger. And then it's negotiating. And then it's depression. And then it's acceptance. And once you accept it, because you can't do anything about it, you say, okay, how can I pivot? How can I make some changes? So we started making some changes and realizing our skill set in this industry is transferable. So we started doing outdoor driving movies and renting our equipment to restaurants for outdoor dining, just all these different things <laughs> to keep a pulse. But then the winter came in 2020 and that all went away and I'm like, now what? And lucky, fortuitously, we got a 
phone call from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts saying that they're going to stand up for mass vaccination sites. Um, we recognize you as, and they called me something that I never realized I was, but I love the word now. They said, you're a logistician. <laughs> like, hang on, let me, let me look that word up, see what it means. So I said, no, you're right. Operations, logistics, that's what we do. And they said, well, that's what we need. So we stood up Gillette and Fenway and Reggie Lewis and the Heinz Convention Center, and we helped move 1.3 million people wow. over six months through uh, seven days a week, 10 hours a day through these mass vaccination sites. And so we were, we, were, we were doing God's work in the sense of helping to save lives, helping to keep people healthy, and actually helping to bring our own industry back. Yeah. So um, it really filled a, a gap for us. And then our events started coming back and we put on eight or nine events at the end of 2021. And now hopefully a back to a full slate in 2022. Is that, that's got to be pretty cool for you being like the Boston sports fan that, you know, some of these stadiums get to be your own little playground. And, and uh, when you are at a Pats game or a Red Sox game, does you, do you have to sometimes consciously sh shut off your, your events, you know, mind and, and think like, oh, I'm here to let me just enjoy the game. Or are you also looking at like, that's how that works and that's what this person's doing and all that? I never relax. <laughs> no, there's no such thing. No, it's always spinning. <laughs> It's always going, it's always spinning. I'm always critiquing, not in a negative way, just saying, wow, you know. I mean, there were things that, like, we got off the plane and there was the whole Uber pickup. Yeah. And I was there with my son and daughter-in-law and I went, boy, if I was in charge of this, I'd make <laughs> these lanes, have people with number signs, and then when we have that thing, have this car come here and this car come here versus they just all come together in one big mass <laughs> and no one knows which car is there. I said, well, they've been doing this for like 10 years. Why hasn't someone figured this out? <laughs> it drives me nuts. Because that's all I'm ever do doing is thinking operationally and logistically yeah. on things. So, um, and it's the same with going to Fenway or going to, to Gillette Stadium and the, the mind's always going. Yeah, no, that's for me, like, uh, growing up in New York City, I fly in and out of LaGuardia Airport all the time, and it's all, every, every single time it's a nightmare. I'm like, just get Dave in charge. He'll, he'll fix it. He'll make it smooth. Um, one last thing, I think, yeah. before I let you go here is uh, when we were kind of going through, you know, the seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, you had just slipped in. It was like, yeah, you know, it wasn't the most challenging thing. What, what has been the most challenging I, I've been I've I've been attending the Boston Marathon. It took me a while to get to my very first one. I went and and covered it in 2014. Oddly enough, the a, a super special one with yeah. Meb winning. And then I was there in 2018 when Des won as well. Where I'm only now starting to think like you having to get out that afternoon. That must have been tough. But what? How does that compare to the toughest? And what in your book? Yeah, I mean, this. The, you know, the attitude is there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear, you know, kind <laughs> of stuff. I mean, we train in these kind of conditions all the time. So if race day brings nasty weather, it's just, okay, it's just another layer of challenge, but it's not the end of the world, yeah. right? So I never look at weather as being, you know, the most, the most difficult challenge, right? Um, for me, of all the things I've done, it may seem odd, but one of the most difficult was I did a 24-hour run, um, ran 120 miles throughout 31 cities and towns throughout um, Massachusetts wow. um, and finished in halftime of a New England Patriot <laughs> football game in front of 60,000 people to raise money for charity. But just, just continually running, you know, for 24 hours... Um, at least with 777, you know, you run for four or four and a half hours and you're done and you can rest. And even running across the country, it was, yeah, 40, 50 miles, but I got done and I could rest. But the 24-hour run, for, for me, as silly as it sounds, compared to everything else, was, I'll always remember, like, I would rest for five minutes and come out of a motorhome and all of a sudden just be so delirious, I wasn't sure which way to go and stuff. Um, so for me, that was that was probably one of the toughest. Awesome. Well, you've got so many people now looking forward to the Boston Marathon. I mean, one, the elite field this year is incredible. Mm. Uh, but in addition to that, 
people can look out on your social media pages for information on how they can donate to the foundation, what other, you know, stuff you've got planned for, for that weekend. But uh, I can't wait to, to, to see you cross that finish line uh, for the 50th time. Thanks. Thanks. I can't wait to cross the finish line <laughs> for the 50th time, get that quote unquote pressure over with. But I always say, you know, for me, People say, well, you direct a marathon, stand in front of 30,000 people, must be a lot of pressure. And I say, well, pressure is a privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a privilege to be in this position to be able to do these things. And, you know, you just, you just have to be prepared. Yeah. And that's the secret to all of this is you can't do it recklessly. You've got to earn the right and be prepared. So um, that's what I'm going to continue to do for the next couple of months, try yeah. to prepare. Awesome, Dave. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you. The City of Smack Podcast is a production of the City of Smack Podcast Network. It is produced and edited by Mike Zerzolo. Did you enjoy this episode enough to dish out a couple bucks? Support City of Smack by pledging any dollar amount over on patreon.com slash City of Smack to join our loyal legion of backers who keep this show going strong. If you're on your phone right now, you can also open up the Venmo app and hit us with a one-time donation to at Mag. We've also got merch over on CityusMag.com. Any way you can show your support goes a long way. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. Legs are feeling good. See you next time.